2023 is the year we celebrate the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's first folio, the first collected works of all of his plays, or at least most of them. And um, everything I know about the first folio came from Lauren Gunderson's play, The Book of Will. And now in reading your book, Chris, I'm thrilled to see that Lauren got a lot of it right, and there's way much more than I ever knew. It's a huge story in many respects. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 855, Shakespeare's First Folio. Twenty twenty three is the four hundredth anniversary of the publication of Shakespeare's first folio, and Chris Lautaris's new book about the creation of it is called, appropriately enough, Shakespeare's Book. In the UK, Shakespeare's Book has the subtitle The Intertwined Lives Behind the First Folio, and in the US, Shakespeare's Book is subtitled The Story Behind the First Folio and the Making of Shakespeare. Shakespeare's book is already published in the UK and will be published in the US tomorrow, just two days after Shakespeare's birthday and death day, and it is thankfully priced far less than the first folio it celebrates. I spoke with Chris two weeks ago, and he started our conversation by describing how the journey to write the history of the first folio was as arduous as the folio's actual creation. One of the reasons I wanted to write it was to slightly push away from this idea that Hemings and Condal, Shakespeare's fellow actors in the in the playing company called the King's Men, um, were the sole creators of the first folio. I think there is there's this beautiful, magnificent monument of Hemings and Condal in St Mary Aldermanbury in London, where they were on the site of the church where they were actually buried, and it says rather grandiloquently on the monument there that they alone created the first folio and I kind of wanted to push back against that a little bit we owe them a great deal naturally because they were Shakespeare's friends they were his colleagues they were the senior kind of theatre managers of the King's Men by the time the first folio was printed um, but they weren't the only ones responsible it was a whole team of people you know there, there were four businesses involved in financing it um, there were press workers, compositors, there were the commemorative poets um, who memorialised Shakespeare in the first folio. So together, it really was a kind of team effort. They created Shakespeare as we know him today, in effect, and I kind of wanted to get that across in this book and tell the full kind of human story of the first folio. Yes, that's one of the uh, extraordinary things about your book is that it it takes a village, clearly, to put together a first folio. Lauren Gunderson framed it in terms of almost a heist movie. You've got to put together the right combination of elements. Who's going to get the rights to this play? Who's going to get the, this permission? Who's going to get that? And you do the same thing in a, in, in a very, thankfully, readable <laughs> Um, non-fiction historical analysis, you had to, it seems to me you had to be an historian of so many different kind elements of history. Can you talk about the different things you had to research just to put this story together? Yeah, I thank you so much for noticing that. Yeah, I think that was one of the things I had to get to grips with this because there's so many different types of history involved. There's book history, the history of how books are actually put together. 
um, what that meant, how the publishing industry actually worked, which is a whole discipline in itself. Then there's the more finickety, detailed bibliographical history, which is how on earth did we piece together what we know about the first folio, when particular plays were printed, who worked on them and in what order and across what kind of chronological time span. That was a whole discipline I had to learn almost from scratch because it wasn't what I did my PhD on. Um, you know, this was a completely new area for me. So I had to do, this is why it took <laughs> nearly 10 years uh, to, to write this book. I had to become well-versed in a completely new discipline. Wow. And then there was the historical context. So what I wanted to do was place the first folio on a timeline alongside the kind of big hot button political issues of the period and find out whether that really did have an effect. Now, scholars have said, you know, there are certain things going on politically that were very seismic that may or may not have had an impact on the first folio. But in order to really get to grips with that, I had to figure out what was going on politically, literally month by month. And then was that dovetailing with what members of the syndicate who created the first folio, the printing team and the King's men were doing at the time and did that tally with that political kind of um, um, ten the political tensions and pressure points of the period did that influence the actual making of the folio well and you and 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 I, I, I'm sorry I keep going back to Lauren Gunderson's play as my point of reference but I was in the Midwest premiere of it here in Chicago at where I played I doubled as Burbage and wow. William Jaggart Oh gosh! Well, no, that is a double act, isn't it? And, and for a and cameoed at the very end as Sir, I think Sir Edward Daring, Daring, yes, yes um, who bought the first two copies. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So oh wow, it's a fantastic track. But 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 in in Lauren's play, she uh, she makes the death of Burbage in in uh, I was going to say 2019 in 1619, sort of the inciting incident of the play, and it seems and that's. It, you frame it as sort of the inciting incident of the folio yeah. as well. Yeah, I had no idea that she had done that in this play. I mean, yeah, I think when you put everything in chronological sequence, I think you can't really escape the conclusion that Burbage's death must have had a huge impact. What I argue is that it had an impact in several directions and kind of led to a chain of events, which may have been an impetus for for at least if not beginning the first folio, if it was already underway, at least kind of pushing the first folio on, acting as a kind of spur um, to Hemmings and Condal. Um, partly because James Burby, uh, Richard Burbage, sorry, was um, so mourned when he died in March of 1619. Far um, more than Shakespeare was. Yeah, publicly. much, much more than Shakespeare and more than Queen Anne of Denmark, who died just a couple of weeks before. And this was right. well known that his, the mourning, um, over his death far eclipsed that of the Queen Anne, uh, much, you know, to, to the annoyance of, of many royalists at the time. Um, and so I think what I argue in the book is that this actually had a seismic impact on Shakespeare publishing initially, because, you know, when Shakespeare stops writing commercial plays at roughly 1613, uh, just after he's finishing kind of a series of collaborative plays, and he stops writing for the commercial theatre, Shakespeare publishing just keeps on dwindling year after year. And by the time we get to 1615, between 1615 and 1618, there are no new Shakespeare plays published and no new reissues of old Shakespeare plays. So it looks like Shakespeare stopped being a vendable commodity at that point. 
-hmm. And then suddenly in 1619, there's an attempt to create a collected edition of Shakespeare plays, not the first folio, but a different collection, which we now call the Pavia Quartos after Thomas Pavia, who was one of the kind of syndicate members who put this together. And he created this kind of early attempt at a collection with the Jaggards, William Jaggard and his son Isaac, who went on to become the printer publishers of the um, first folio. And so I argue that it was Burbage's death that suddenly led to a resurgence of interest in Shakespeare. And that this had a kind of knock-on effect, which must have influenced Hemings and Condell. And I think they would have realized, you know, it's actually little known that when Richard Burbage lay dying on his deathbed, another uh, senior member of the King's Men, um, Richard Cowley, sometimes pronounced Cooley, um, was being buried. So in actual fact, within days of each other, two very senior members of the King's Men had died. Mm. Now, this meant that Hemings and Condal were the very last of the senior members of the original Chamberlain's Men, the, the, the company name before they became the King's Men. So they must have thought, OK, we are really the last living link to the totality of Shakespeare's oeuvre, to the totality of everything Shakespeare was and everything Shakespeare produced. If we go, then nobody alive will have such a knowledge of the whole, whole of Shakespeare's output. And so I think they must have thought it's a now or never moment, you know, after Richard Burbage dies and Richard Cowley dies, you know, this is a now or never moment. We need to publish this collection now um, because there'll be no one left to do it after we're gone. They are the last senior members of the company left. And it, it's funny because it's now or never gives it an, there's an urgency to the story. And yet it, it still didn't get actually published for four years. It took four years to put yes. it all together. Yeah, yeah. It was a huge, I mean, the obstacles, I mean, the, I calculated it that they were, um, they had to find rights, who owned the rights to up to 22 plays, mm -hmm. negotiate with them. And that turned out to be in total up to 12 different bookseller stationers, if you include the members of the syndicate within that. So 20, 22 plays for which the ownership had to be determined um, across 12 bookseller stationers, that's a massive undertaking. Um, so no wonder it took a while to, yeah. um, to chase down all of those plays. Well, and it's not, it, it, what's lovely about the folio and impressive about the um, you know, just the endeavor of, of of publishing it is that it's not just the it's not just the text of the plays. It's a hugely expensive and beautiful work of art in and of itself. Um, uh, well, and I'm and I'm happy to see that your book has also been given a similar treatment. It's your book is really handsome. I've only seen pictures of, of it, but it's like, did you have any say in that as the author? Please make this as pretty as you can. Um, I think it was just the genius of the publishing team um, uh, in, in both, you know, the, both the UK and the, the US publishing team. So it's published in the UK and, and else other territories by William Collins and in the US and Canada by Pegasus. And I think they just put so much work and love into it. And um, I haven't actually seen the physical um, uh, American edition yet. I will be seeing that very, very soon. But in terms of the William Collins edition, um, they just put so much care into it. So it has color plates, stunning color plates. It also has inset images, which is quite rare these days. So there are, there are inset images throughout the main body of the book. Mm -hmm. And they did a gorgeous job of the front cover, which has this lovely tree motif, which is a metaphor in the book. So in the book, I described the first folio, you know, if the first folio is a giant tree, 
then the visible branches are those names we know attached to the folio, you know, Hemmings, Condor, the, the four syndicate members who actually paid the money uh, to make the folio happen. Um, these were William and Isaac Jaggard, Edward Blount, um, John Smethick and William Aspley. So these are the people we know. But then the roots, the invisible roots are all of those hands um, who helped create the first folio, who are not as well known, and who I also wanted to do due service to in the book. So the tree metaphor was beautifully translated into the cover in the William Collins version, and it's got gold foil, so it's a lovely kind of very sumptuous, that, that it kind of captures the ethos of the first folio, which was an incredibly expensive book at the time. You know, it was 15 shillings just to buy without a cover, um, which was a huge sum of money at the time. You know, it was roughly, I think, in today's money, over about 120, 130 British pounds sterling, um, which was, you know, this was a very expensive commodity when it was released. About the cost of a typical academic tome now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. Hi, my name is Lauren Gunderson. I'm the playwright for The Book of Will, among other plays. And you are listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? We'll perform the complete history of comedy abridged three times in North Carolina this July of 2023 at the Blumenthal Center in Charlotte on July 13th and 14th and Appalachian State University on July 16th. Check out the touring page at our website, ReducedShakespeare.com, or our Facebook page or our Twitter feed at Reduced for the latest information. Now back to my conversation with Chris Lautaris talking about Shakespeare's book, which tells the complicated story of the creation of Shakespeare's first folio. Chris was talking about this idea that the folio's creators and the first folio itself created the Shakespeare we know today. So much of it has to do with the framing of Shakespeare. You know, think about the way Shakespeare has been marketed, the, you know, brand Shakespeare. So much of that comes from the first folio, not to mention the iconic title page portrait, which is the only authenticated image of Shakespeare, which was kind of ratified, authenticated by someone during Shakespeare's lifetime. Yeah. So think yeah. about how much we lose of Shakespeare's identity without that image alone. But then if you remember that with the first folio, we have gathered together the most that had ever been said about Shakespeare up until that point, then we really do have an origin for Shakespeare biography. It kind of Shakespeare biography begins with the first folio. It's the, it's the most that had ever been said in one place about him up until that point. And, you know, so much of what we think about Shakespeare is this kind of transcendental genius almost. Um, uh, the way he's kind of tapped into the natural world, the way this kind of myth of his genius which allowed um just the most beautiful and mellifluous lines to flow from his pen almost automatically without any blots um in his papers as Hemmings and Condell say which is unlikely to have been true given those plays have such a complex history but you know that myth of this productive mellifluous honey-tongued Shakespeare who could write instantaneously off the cuff and everything you know, it's perfect, fantastic, fantastic, didn't need revision. That myth has really been kind of grounded and helped create the kind of bardolatry that then um, emerged in the 18th century and beyond. So, um, yeah, without the first folio, I think Shakespeare would have looked very different, not to mention the fact that 
18 plays would probably not exist yeah, had it not yeah. been for the first folio because they were published there for the first time and may have been consigned to oblivion otherwise. Right. And not just the crappy ones. Twelfth Night, Macbeth, others. Yeah. yeah. The Tempest, yeah. Julius Caesar, Antony and Cleopatra. You know, the list is goes on and on. You know, imagine a world without Macbeth. Um, it's inconceivable, you know, it, and the industries, the, the, the number of industries that have taken root through the first folio, um, you know, tourist industries, pedagogical um, um, institutions, uh, websites, merchandising, film companies, theatre companies, you know, Shakespeare's unlikely to have had the towering reputation he did, which would have resulted in all of that happening had it not been for the first folio. So it's incredible, you know, what, what that book has done culturally. There would be, there would be no reduced theater, Shakespeare company without yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have a career. <laughs> yeah, my whole career hinges on Shakespeare. You know, it's incredible just how many industries and lives have been changed by this. The, the Shakespeare industrial complex is uh, long and strong, yeah. Um, uh, we talked about how the death of uh, Richard Burbage was sort of the inciting incident for the creation of the folio. Can you talk a little about uh, talk a little about Shakespeare's widow, Anne Hathaway, who died in 1623, the year the folio was printed, which seems like a wonderful closure. But I, I assume she had some sort of influence into the. Well, it's very difficult to know. I mean, what I did, I noticed a couple of. It's really difficult to explain my feeling when I found these these synchronicities. <clears throat> there, there was a kind of magic to it. There was a there was a pause in the printing of the first folio um, in the summer of 1622, and there was a quite a big gap in that printing. Um, what what was going on at that time? And one thing I discovered was that this was exactly the time when the king's men pitched up in Stratford-upon-Avon. They, they undertook the journey to Stratford-upon-Avon. They were famously paid not to perform because uh, at the Guildhall because there was a kind of long-standing edict forbidding performances at the Guildhall. They wanted to perform and they were told they couldn't. But, you know, what were they doing? Aside from maybe hoping to perform, what were they doing in Stratford-upon-Avon? Were they there looking for more Shakespeare papers, perhaps? Mm. We will never know, but it's very tantalising to think about the fact that they during the printing, the break in the printing of the first folio, they must have visited Shakespeare's grave. You know, did they see Shakespeare's grave and think, yes, that is what we want for the cover. You know, that's what we want for the title page because there's so many affinities between Shakespeare's monument and the first folio's iconic title page. The other thing I noticed, which I found very poignant was, as you say, Anne Shakespeare died on the 6th of August. We know what play was being printed when she died, it was Othello. So Othello was being printed when Anne Shakespeare died. But even more poignant, just two weeks after her death, or less than two weeks, in fact, uh, the King's Men relicense The Winter's Tale for performance. The, 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 the prompt book for that play had been lost. We don't know how long it had been lost for. It had been reported missing. But they choose that moment to relicense that play for performance. And it's among the first plays which were... Uh, presented uh, to court in the court season of that winter. And this made me wonder, you know, was this play a tribute to Anne? And if you think about that play, it's a play about monumentalized um, uh, maternity. Um, and in the winter's tale, um, uh, Hermione and Leontes have a son named Mamilius who dies and is not revived by the end of the play, which is very sad and very poignant and might remind us of Hamnet. So did they perform this play as a tribute to Anne? 
knowing that it was special to her and to Shakespeare in some way. So, you know, that's another another thing that I discovered about about um, the synchronicities in this um, uh, in, in the printing history of the first folio that really got to me when I was researching it. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, except for one more thing, which I'll share with you in about 60 seconds, so stick around. Shakespeare's book, The Story of the Intertwined Lives Behind the First Folio and the Making of Shakespeare, to give it both its U.S. and U.K. subtitles, is available wherever you get your books and is a fascinating, readable read. Send us your publishing saga via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com or throw a comment to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or on our own actual website, reducedshakespeare.com, or visit my website, theshakespeareans.com. You can also follow Chris Lautaris on Twitter at Dr. C. Lautaris. Thanks, as always, to He Who Thus Merits the Gratitude of Mankind, Matthew Croak, Web Services by Ginger Power Limited, Music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Cheryl Argret. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Lauren Gunderson, America's most produced playwright, aside from Shakespeare, for several years running, and the author of The Book of Will. Follow her on Twitter and Instagram, at LalaTellsAStory. And as always, thanks very much to you for listening. Please continue to stay safe, get your boosters, and keep your masks on. I'm Austin Titchener, 855, 2565ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. So in addition to all these historical disciplines that you need to become a master of to write this book, you also need to be a kind of literary detective and crime novelist to put together the motivations for this. Yeah, and I think... You know, I, what's great about putting everything in a sequence, in a chronological sequence in this way for the first time, is that you do see these synergies developing and you can speculate. There is some latitudes for speculation. And I am honest in the book, you know, where we can't, where, I, where we can't be sure of something, I would say, you know, we can't prove this for sure, but it's tantalizing to speculate. It fires the imagination to think about what might have happened here. And we see things in a new way when we place everything in a chronological sequence and look for the human motivations, as you say, behind um, the actions of the individuals who put this this incredible volume together. And also those in the peripheries, those who were involved in in their lives, like Anne Shakespeare, for instance. Um, you know, and it's just nice to be able to see it all in, in one place like that all that material collated together and in order this podcast is a production of the reduce shakespeare company reducing expectations since 1981 go to reduce for performance dates actor bios email newsletters and so much less